This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The long term consequences of a, a poor gut health on diseases like cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. I'm pretty much convinced from what I've seen and read that there is a relationship. It also takes much longer. It's not like this doesn't happen within five or 10 years, but it, if you have a lifetime of, uh, of all these negative influences affecting your gut and you have a genetic vulnerability, I think your, your risk of developing one of these diseases is, is much higher. So if you did an intervention Early on, what the first warning signs of, of any of those, you know, serious, very serious brain disorders. And you did an intervention with diet and all the other things that we talked about. I'm pretty convinced that this would have a, at least a slowing effect on the brain processes. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobes. And today's guest is world-renowned gastroenterologist and neuroscientist, Dr. Emren Mayer. Dr. Mayer is a distinguished research professor in the departments of medicine, physiology, and psychiatry at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. He has over 35 years of experience studying how the mind and gut interact and how it all pertains to health and disease. His work has been supported by the National Institute of Health and has published over 370 peer-reviewed scientific articles. He has also written two books of his own, including The Mind-Gut Connection and his newly released book, The Gut-Immune Connection. I felt like I could have spent all day talking with him as this subject is something that is extremely fascinating to me, and it's also very timely given the times that we are in. Our conversation today is super informative and tactical, and I can promise you that you will feel empowered to take action on your health after listening. We get into the nuts and bolts of it all. We discuss the mind-gut-immune system connection and why it is so important to take care of them all. Dr. Mayer shares why chronic stress is one of the most destructive things for your brain, gut health, and immune system, and how to fix it. We chat about what else is at the root cause for poor brain and gut health and immune function, and you will find out why what you eat plays such a pivotal role in all of this. He talks about what you can do right now to improve your gut health, brain health, and immune system, and how to know if each of these are not functioning properly. Our combo also gets into probiotics, and if in fact they are actually useful, as well as what you can do when your body begins to feel off balance. Of course, we get into how to know if all the systems are running smoothly, if it's ever too late to address your brain and gut health, and so much more. 
So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Emran Mayer to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Mayer, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Doc. It's a pleasure to, to talk to you. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm a massive fan of your work, and I really like to talk about the gut, gut health, microbiome, immunity, how it affects mental health, how it affects the way we manage illnesses, how we fight off viruses. And, and anytime I have the opportunity to chat with somebody who's a renowned expert on this, I, I love the opportunity. And I think like a good place to start is like really like trying to, if you could just painting a picture on why it's so important for people to take care of their gut. Cause I know we hear a lot about it. We hear it's a second brain. We hear that it controls, you know, a lot of our immune system. But I mean, if you could really paint that picture, I think people would, would appreciate that. Yeah, I would say, you know, we've sort of come full circle from traditional, from, from healing, ancient healing traditions from the Chinese and Ayurvedic all the way to uh, Hippocrates, you know, who said that all diseases start in the gut. Um, not sure how they came up with this, with this conclusion, because obviously they had no way of looking at the gut or looking at the microbes or looking at it. knew anything about the gut, but for some reason that came out in their conclusions. And, you know, until, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that was not the view that was taught in, in medical school. You know, we were taught that uh, the, the gut is, a, that is, the, is the digestive organ and it's broken down into different tasks. It has from the esophagus to the stomach to the... They were all sort of defined by mechanical and chemical functions that they have. So, you know, the colon was the waste storage and the small intestine was the absorptive site. And so that has completely changed. You know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's not really made it into the medical school curricula. It's still being taught the old way. But certainly there's been an explosion of interest and dissemination in the lay media and uh, online, you know, in podcasts and 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 I have to say, you know, in, in my two books, starting with the first one, my gut connection, but then going over even deeper with the gut immune connection, I've I've really delved into this aspect that, you know, the gut is the most complex organ. And it you know, you could go back in evolution, bodies evolved basically as a floating as floating digestive tubes with a nerve net surrounding them. So there was always this intimate communication between the digestive tube and the and the, the the nervous system. And you know, fast forward, now we know 70% of the immune system is in the gut. Most immune system, most immune cells that circulate in our blood and go to distant um, sites, so like the you know, be it be it the liver, uh, be it um be it uh, be it the brain, be it the lungs. Um had a passage or a, a programming phase or an encounter in the gut with, with our microbes and with pathogens potentially and with the food. So that makes the gut sort of a central organ in immune regulation. Then we also have, you know, a big part of our endocrine or hormonal system in the gut, mainly in terms of these functions that relate to what we call ingestive behavior, how much you're craving for food and at what point the appetite and the craving is shut off by a hormone produced, you know, in, in the small intestine. 
And then, you know, we also have this, uh, this nervous system in the gut, that this enteric, what's called enteric nervous system, which is actually, you know, it's not the second, it's really the first brain because in evolution, it, that, that enteric nervous system wrapped around the floating guts was, was their first. And much later, you know, we developed a, a polar structure of our organisms with a head and, and a brain in that head. And then, our main brain is really the second brain. So to put all these things together, then you look at, you know, what we have learned in the last, you know, 10 years, really exponentially of how important like immune activation in the gut is based on a, an unhealthy diet and how that makes the gut more permeable and allows immune cells to get into the bloodstream. And so, yeah, even though... You know, I may be biased as a gastroenterologist. It's no exaggeration that, you know, the gut is the most, it's not only the, you know, where, where, where most of the diseases start. It's in health, it's the most important homeostatic organ uh, in our body. And particularly this axis, this connection between the, the brain, you know, who guides us through life in the world and the gut, who is this universal regulator of all other systems in the bodies. It's really, you know, it's, it's, it's the key to understand health and disease. Yeah, it's, it's so important that we, that we take care of our guts today just because of what you said, like the impact it has on our brains, the impact it has on our hormones, the impact it has on immunity, the impact it has on our ability to fight off viruses and essentially just live our best lives. And I definitely want to get into like the million dollar questions surrounding immune function in the gut and how people can mitigate that. But I think first, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, a lot, a lot of people are struggling, I think with mental health issues, they're struggling with stress, they're struggling with depression, they're struggling with fatigue and the inability to get good sleep. So like what's going on when that happens? Like, so say somebody gets stressed, is the brain going into the fight or flight and then sending a response down to the gut and then the gut kind of acts up or is it the other way around where there's a feeling going off in your gut and that's sending a signal to the brain like what's going on with that so i would offer a third explanation <clears throat> and i should you know emphasize that i spent the better first half of my career really looking at how the brain and stress affects the gut so and I know there's an extensive literature on that, um, and particularly the role, you know, of the, the stress system within the brain and how they're altered. But so I'm definitely biased that these processes start in the brain, but like many systems in our body, they form a circular connection. So, you know, one pathway from the brain goes down into the gut and to the microbes. The end result of that, and, and it's not, it's not just the fight and flight response. It's, it's the chronic stress. You know, I should deviate a little bit from, from what, what I was saying. Our, our brains and our stress response in the brain have really evolved to optimize the response to an acute stressor. And that's what the fight and flight response is. So once you, you know, defeat the enemy or once you run away into safety, it's over. There's no, you know, it's, it's rare. I mean, there are certain conditions in the, in the animal world where this becomes chronic. Um, but in generally, that, that 
fight and flight response evolved as a extremely effective mechanism to guarantee the survival of the human species and all other, you know, animal species. But it was not developed for the chronic stress that we are exposed to in modern societies. So it's, and, you know, it takes about, it takes about 15,000 years before genes adapt to new environments and new situations. So our brains have not had the time to really change, you know, that the mechanisms that shut off the stress response have not gotten stronger. This may ultimately happen. You know, we may, if, if we as humans are exposed to a continuously increasing stressful world, our brain quite likely will produce inhibitory mechanisms that will immediately shut off that stress response. But we don't have those yet. So a lot of people are under this chronically engaged stress response, which creates what's called an allostatic load. So increased levels of cortisol, increased levels of norepinephrine, these stress mediators, alter the, the, the targets. They don't just, you know, ramp them up for optimal function, but they actually alter these targets in a negative way, in a, in a, a maladaptive way. So depression is, is one of those consequences of increased allostatic load. But I also think many of the things that we now experience and people report the chronic fatigue and the sleeplessness and all this. So these are not adaptive mechanisms. You know, they, they're all the, the, the consequence of a chronically engaged stress system. And, and that applies. So, you know, you engage your stress system in the brain. The brain sends down the signals to the HPA axis and through the autonomic nervous system. That changes both the gut function, but also the gut microbial function and the gene expression and and also in, in the gut, that increases the, the permeability of the gut or the leakiness. So you just being under chronic stress, you will develop this, you know, what has been referred to in the, in the lay media as leaky gut or increased permeable gut, which then has a consequence on the immune system. Then this chronic, chronic low-grade immune activation affects the brain, you know, plays a role in the chronic fatigue and brain fog and all these things. So it starts in the brain, it goes into the gut, it's translated into these, into these molecules, the signaling molecules that then feed back to the brain and alter brain function. So I think a lot of people are stuck in this vicious cycle now, you know, and it's, it's kind of silent, you know, you don't, like we hear daily how many people have died today from, from COVID-19 and what the infection rate is, but we didn't really hear the, the toll it's taking on children, on students, on, on brain development. Because like these things that I told you, you know, they, they also change the brain development. You know, it's not just the function, but also the... So I think once we come out of this, uh, this pandemic, I mean, we'll see, you know, what devastating impact this really had on increased prevalence of... I, I haven't seen these numbers really of depression, uh, anxiety... Even, you know, suicide rates, substance abuse rates, that they have definitely gone up. You know, we know that. But I think this is, yeah, a big toll. And I think we have a pretty good explanation for that. You know, how this, this circular system in, in, in our bodies between the brain and the gut and the microbes play a central role in this. Yeah, I mean, drug overdoses, you know, they were up 
like I think almost 30% last year, I think almost 93,000 Americans died from a drug overdose. And I think, unfortunately, it's only going to get worse. I think we're just seeing the beginning because we haven't even really seen the aftermath of everything. And, and you're right. I think we've been caught in this constant stress response like throughout the last year or two. And a lot of people are unaware of it because this is, it's created a new normal for, for a lot of people yeah. where the average person who maybe isn't the health and wellness aficionado or isn't the person that's really into personal development, like isn't doing the best job to research how to manage stress, how to strengthen their immune system, how to really eat well to protect yourself um, from viruses, from illnesses. And so from what I understand, what you just explained. So essentially when we get stressed, it starts in the brain, sends signals down to the gut, and then it alters parts of our gut. And then from there, if it's not addressed, it can affect our immune system and, and other things. And some of the signs that we'll see are leaky gut, digestive issues, having trouble with bowel movements, fatigue, lack of energy, depression, anxiety, all as a result of the over static, the over consumption of stress, I guess, if you will. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, I, I think the, the key concept that I sort of learned from, you know, discussing this with a lot of colleagues and podcast hosts and also from doing my research on the book, I, I think that the two key things that, that this new world of ours, you know, that we, that we find ourselves in, one is, is this allostatic load stress, this chronic stress, relentless, increasing, you know, and, and I could add a lot of things to it, increased competition to get jobs, to get into universities. I mean, the fierce competition to get a university spot in a, in a good school is, is you know, is, is mind boggling. It keeps getting worse. So that's the allostatic stress load. But then we have the dietary stress load. So this is this poor diet you know, that, that our microbes have adapted to fairly rapidly, you know, so one of the things that our microbes can do perfectly because they have a huge gene pool of, of, you know, 20 million genes, a lot more than we have human genes. So they are masters in rapidly adapting to new environments, including different diets. So the changing diet in the last 75 years in, in, in the U.S. and in other Western countries the microbes have adapted to it, but now they face the immune system and the gut, which has not adapted to it because it's, again, just like the brain, it's much slower. You know, it will take about 15,000 years for adaptation to this new. And, and now we have this mismatch between the microbial world and, and the gut system, which leads to, you know, the warning system in the gut is the immune system. So the, the immune system is activated in response to this mismatch yeah, so we find ourselves in two situations where, you know, we have not evolved optimally to face these challenges. And, you know, so the only solution that we have, one is, I mean, one is waiting 15,000 years before our bodies have adapted. But we may, this may take such a collateral damage that we don't want to take that route or really change things pretty dramatically in terms of our lifestyle. And the good news is th that is, partially happening you know people are realizing they can't rely on the medical system or medications and pharmaceutical industry to deal with this they need to take their their fates into their own hands you know and 
So, so that's the good thing. And I often don't know, is this sort of my myopic view of living on, in Southern California? Uh, or is this happening across the country in, in similar ways? But it's pretty amazing how rapidly this is changing. You know, the, the emphasis on a healthy diet and on, and on other lifestyle changes that are actually happening outside the medical system. I think the medical system is sort of, you know, much slower in adapting and, and still sticking with old teachings and, you know, do your blood test, for, you know, your regular checkup. I mean, that's not the way you deal with this. You know, this is happening. This is a much bigger threat to our health and, and survival, really, than, so it needs more urgent action. And, and some of that is happening. I think as humans, we have this element of curiosity within us that I think, unfortunately, some people just don't really tap into or may never tap into, but there's a certain percentage of people that do. And they're like, okay, like this doesn't make sense. Like, let's explore this and see if there's a better way to approach this. So let's just see if I can find out like a solution to this problem on my own. And then people just kind of do their own research. They start talking to people. Maybe they come come across a clinician who has like the science background and they come together and that's how these things start. And it's interesting what you said, you know, we were talking about, you know, how our brains haven't adapted to handle like the stress load with today of everything that's like coming at us all the time. Like we were used to like in, you know, years ago, like, it was used for survival and the threat of like an animal chasing us or being able to hunt our food for the day, whatever it is. So are you saying that because of the evolution of like things like processed foods and added sugars and sodas that our gut just hasn't adapted to be able to digest those properly? Yeah. He's not adapted because as, as I said, I mean, you know, adaptation, I mean, there's a couple of mechanisms. One is you know, it's epigenetic. Yeah, there, there probably have been some adaptations epigenetic way, but but the genes, you know, take much longer before they before they adapt and before they are selected for the for the ones that are optimal. So, yeah, our our biological system has been just can't adapt rapidly enough. And you know, it's it's kind of interesting when we think about the medical system. So the medical system is also created by our, our brains, basically. And the medical system hasn't adapted either to this. So the medical system is very good in dealing with acute diseases. You know, we're phenomenal what we can do, even with the pandemic. You know, the, the vaccine development and in surgery, it's mind-boggling what modern medicine can do. But it's all for these acute challenges, for these acute perturbations. Medicine is not good at all in dealing with chronic disease other than suppressing the consequences with medications. And that's what we, that's what we in, you know, the, the, the consumption of medications for high blood pressure, for um, high cholesterol, for, for, you know, for, for chronic uh, immune activation. We're, we're spending increasing amounts, you know, we, yeah, we have a healthcare crisis, both financially and it's not sustainable. But that's because, you know, medicine is not able to adapt to this to these challenges of chronic disease. So I would say we, we could almost say neither the gut nor our stress system nor the medical system are really adapted or have evolved to respond properly to these to these challenges we're facing. You're right. And I think unfortunately 
we've lost the ability to take responsibility and accountability and control of our own health. And sure, there's so much we can't control that happens on a day-to-day basis, but there is a lot we can control. We can control what we eat. We can control how much movement we get on a daily basis. We can control whether we want to sit in peace and meditate or how much sleep we get. There's a lot we can control. And we're in this instant gratification society where we're so used to being able to get a solution or a fix within a matter of seconds. Like you figure out, like if you want to, if I want to know how to get from UCLA campus to to Malibu, for instance, I can just put it in Google Maps and I'll get in a directions within yeah, yeah. five seconds instead of like old school, like you're either walking and asking somebody or you're pulling out a map and studying it for 10 to 15 minutes and then just putting your route together, which might take 30 minutes. And the same thing goes like if you're, I was using this analogy earlier, where if you want to know who won a, a sports game, like back in the day when I was a kid, I had to wait until like Sports Center or ESPN came on the next day, or I had to wait for the next morning's paper to see who won like a baseball game. Now mm-hmm. I can just Google it. And so we get used to that. And so whenever somebody comes into the doctor's office and has high blood pressure, when the doctor's like, oh, I can fix that. Here's a pill. We're like, okay, great. Take it. And it doesn't fix the underlying problem. I'm not against, I'm not a uh, medical professional. I'm not against taking medication, but I think there's got to be a multifaceted approach in order for us to crawl out of this hole. And like along the same lines, we were talking about stress and how when we have this allostatic load and we're just over consumed by what's going on in our lives and our brains acting up and our guts acting up, like in that moment, like when you're really stressed, is it more important to focus on taking care of your gut, the brain, both? Like, which, what do you recommend? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Well, I mean, I would recommend, you know, you, you should always have both of these things in mind. There's not a single solution. You know, obviously if you, and then acute, stressful situation, you know, you may do something like your mindfulness practice on your app, or you may do your abdominal breathing, your diaphragmatic breathing, which will calm you down. With with the diet, you know, you have to make that part of your lifestyle. You have to say, okay, I'm I'm gonna go on this on this diet. It's it's not gonna solve everything, but it's it's the basis for keeping the system in, in more in balance than and you know there's this unfortunate situation that the unhealthiest food, uh, the high fat, um, high caloric food is, you know, comfort food essentially that on the short term, that works really well to calm you down. So, you know, you see people eating, munching, 
when they were stressed. But in the long term, it makes the situation even worse. You know, it it it, it makes your gut compromises your gut health, your your, your gut microbial health. So for the for the diet part, this has to be sort of a a continuous and permanent change in the way you eat for the, you know, the acute stress management. I mean, there is now, you know, we have things available on, 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 in, in app form that can help you to do this fairly quickly. Even though you should also do it chronically. I mean, you, everybody should in the morning spend, you know, five to 15 minutes doing mindfulness practice or some med- meditative practice or breathing technique. And the same thing in the evening before you go to sleep. So, you can do it both as a as a baseline health enhancing intervention, or and you can do it as an acute remedy, like a contingent contingency. You know, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that you have to take care of both the brain and the gut. You can't just like say, oh, "I'm just going to take care of the gut and not take care of the brain," because they all circle back with each other. And if you don't take care of the brain, that'll impact the gut, and so on and so forth. So I guess my next question is, let's just say that somebody has all the signs of leaky gut. They're having irregular bowel movements. They're, they're stressed. They're not getting good sleep. They're tired all the time. And I know obviously you're a gastroenterologist. So like the average person, like how, like what kind of food would you recommend they eat? What kind of foods would you recommend that they stay away from in order to kind of swing the pendulum the other way to make their gut run more efficiently? Yeah, I mean, I have a fairly simple answer for this, you know, which is, you know, stick to what I call the default diet for human health, which is a largely plant-based diet. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be vegan if if you do it for ethical reasons and, you know, vegan or vegetarian, you should go that way. But if you do it just for health reasons, you personally, um, something like a Mediterranean or traditional Asian Japanese diet is, is, is good enough. And, the reason is because um, there's, there's two components of that diet, uh, or, or, or three elements, I would say. The one component is the dietary fibers, these complex, carbohyd- you know, complex carbohydrate molecules cannot be absorbed intact in small intestines, so they go down to the microbes. It's the ideal food for your microbes. It increases, if you, if you eat it from a large variety of plant-based foods, it increases the diversity and the abundance and the richness. And the breakdown product of, of these complex carbohydrates, a big component are these short-chain fatty acids, which have an anti-inflammatory effect. They stimulate certain immune cells in your gut. They do a lot of things. They talk to most cells in your gut. It's almost like the words of a universal gut language. But one important thing is they act on receptors of of a, of a class of immune cells, they're called T-reg cells, T-regulatory cells, that produce a, a molecule, a cytokine molecule called interleukin-10, which is anti-inflammatory. So that's kind of the medicine that your gut produces when it has the right set of microbes. So you have your internal built-in, you know, counter-regulatory mechanism for any of these unhealthy situations that the gut produces these molecules. Now, if you don't feed the microbes to produce these, 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 this immune, this inhibitory immune response, then, then obviously it doesn't happen or it's sufficient. And that's what happens in a lot of people today because they 
you know, they consume 10 grams of fiber per, per day, whereas our ancestors consumed 80 grams of fiber, you know, so it's, so we're producing a fraction, most people producing a fraction of those anti-inflammatory molecules that we have evolution has equipped us with. You know, it's almost like the, the, the fire engines that have been built sit idle. They're not getting activated because there's no gasoline for that. You know, so that's kind of the, a good comparison. The gasoline will be the, the plant-based food, the fiber to fuel these engines so they could put out the fire. And um, so that's one type of molecules. The other one is this group of molecules called polyphenols, which, you know, generally is always referred to as antioxidants. And these are also, just like the fiber, very large molecules that cannot be absorbed in our gut, in our small intestine. So they go down to the microbes. They also enrich the microbial diversity and they turn into small molecules, which some of which have antioxidant or some of which have anti-inflammatory effects. So just based on these two things, you know, that, that's the explanation why plant-based fiber, a plant-based food is so, is so healthy and it's the remedy for a lot of the problems that we're facing today. A third thing is the plant-based diet has a low caloric density. So, you know, th this weight gain during stress or during negative emotions, if you're on a plant-based diet, you, you, you are allowed to eat regularly for the same amount overall, but you get much fewer calories because the caloric density is much lower, you know. So, yeah, that, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So it seems like the two main things you're, you're talking about are diversity with a mostly plant-based approach, 100% if you're somebody that's going to do it for ethical reasons, and then making sure that you're getting an adequate amount of fiber every single day as well. One of the things that comes up a lot is probiotics and it's a, it's a hot thing. Like, you know, people are constantly, you know, toying around with the idea of either taking or not taking a probiotic. Like so when you take a probiotic, is it something that you can take in the short term to help improve your gut and then stop taking it? Or when you take it, is it something that you have to, you know, take consistently? Like what's your view on probiotics? Well, I mean, we've done studies on probiotics. You know, the first ones that showed that intake of probiotics in healthy people could actually affect the you know, brain stress circuits. And uh, but there's a few things that are really important to uh, to remember. So first of all, not everybody responds to a probiotic intake the same way. You know, because we have all different gut microbial compositions. A general principle is that your own gut microbes won't let these foreigners come in and settle there. So they're, they're, they're very, you know, for an unfriendly environment. It's called colonization resistance. So for most people, the probiotics you take, as long as you take them, they hang around. Two days in after you stop eating them, they're gone. They're, 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 they will not settle there. A recent study has shown really interesting finding that they, they compared a, a high fiber diet with a, with a, a diet high in fermented, naturally fermented products from kimchi to kombucha to yogurt, kefir. And the, the fermented diet actually had a, a greater effect on diversity and on, on the health of the, you know, the microbial system than the high fiber diet. I, I think it was, you know, it was a small study, only 15 participants in each group. 
So I don't, I'm not sure if this is the last word on it, but a very interesting finding that they found is that this increased diversity on the fermented, which means probiotic rich diet, right. um, occurred not because you added the microbes from the outside, but this feeding with the fermented food increased the migration of other microbes into the microbiome. They weren't sure where they came from, from the environment, from the, from the food that they ate, you know. But this is a very interesting concept that has not really been pursued in detail. Is there a possibility that if you eat naturally fermented food, you know, which may be different than just eating supplements with probiotics, pills with probiotics, that you actually increase the diversity by bringing in more players from the outside? If, if that's really confirmed, then I would say that that's a, that's a great way. And my conclusion from that recent study, in an early conclusion, it's the combination of the high fiber and the high, um, the, the probiotic enriched diet that would be the optimal. But, you know, so that's sort of, I mean, that was my lesson when I read this, this study. I mean, we've, we've been doing this anyway at home. So, but I think that confirmed that. Yeah, I think like you said, or I think like you mentioned, you know, people can't expect just to eat fermented foods or take a probiotic and then that alone to heal an unhealthy gut or to keep their, that to keep their gut healthy alone by doing that. People have to really focus on what they're eating on a daily basis. They got to focus on what they're doing to take care of their immune system. They got to focus on what they're doing to take care of their brain, their stress levels and everything else. Otherwise, like just taking a pill or eating fermented foods every day isn't really going to matter. It just seems like that's like the icing on the cake to help take your gut health to the next level. Um, so I want to... Yeah, and, and, and just one comment. So, you know, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who is he's one of the, the world's polyphenol experts. And he said the same thing. You know, if, if you think you can stick with your traditional diet with your steaks and hamburgers and french fries and sugary drinks um, and take a supplement <clears throat> at the same time don't fool yourself that you're doing anything for your gut health you know it's a it's a pure placebo if you feel better on this in this regimen it's pure placebo if you change your diet and then add certain you know certain supplements like for example there's the studies with one proof of polyphenols that that has shown that it slows cognitive decline. You know, if if you take that the high dose on the on a daily basis, um, then that so that's something that I personally would would consider. If I see a study in the future that confirms, I mean, there's not many probiotic studies that have really done that. You know, like for over a year with somebody on a sugar diet. I would imagine if you did that study on. 500 people, there would be subgroups of people that do really well on that, on that intervention in addition to their healthy diet. So I would never take a group of people on a standard American diet and tell them, add your supplements to it. That's going to help you. Yeah. Yeah. So you, what I'm hearing you say, if you were to suggest just one supplement, if you're somebody who has what you're eating on a daily basis in check, you would say to supplement with polyphenols. There's been a lot of research on that's really optimize like gut and brain health. Yeah, and again, not the same degree in every person. You know, it okay. depends on with the polyphenols. It depends on what what entro. It's called entrotype. What 
constellation of microbes you have. If you have a certain constellation of microbes, they're able to break down these polyphenols into health-promoting molecules. If you don't have it, that have these microbes, it, it won't do anything. So in the future, most likely, you know, we will fingerprint these enterotypes before prescribing or before recommending a... And then the same thing might happen with, with probiotics, that we don't just give the same to everybody, recommend the same to everybody, but it will be a test of, of their the gut microbial ecosystem and then based on that you, you add you know a particular intervention I, I think that's that approach is almost certainly going to happen right yeah and the individualistic approach i think is is crucial for people it's paramount really that you really have to listen to your body and if you're noticing you're eating certain types of food and you're feeling off you're energy's low, you're having digestive issues, you're stressed, you're not sleeping well, then you got to kind of take a look at what you're doing. And I think a lot of it comes down to, to awareness and, and anything in life. It's like, you got to really pay attention to what you're eating. And a lot of people, they just, they just go by, right? They just, the days fly by and they have no idea what they're watching on TV half the time or what they're listening to, what they're reading or what they're eating. And then they wonder like three years have gone by and they're wondering why they've put on some weight or they're extra stressed or their anxieties up or they're sleep deprived and they don't realize it just started with a lack of awareness of what their daily habits were doing to their health. So let's get into it. Let's like the immunity and, and, and immunity and, and, and keeping yourself healthy and free from sickness is a hot topic right now. And I guess to get started, like what are the biggest signs that somebody has like a, an immune system that's off, right? Like how, how does somebody know if they have an immune system that needs to be worked on or that's weak? Yeah, it's, it's, it's good that you bring up this point and that you say that the immune system is off and not say that you have a incompetent or an insufficient or compromised immune system. Because most of these situations that we now deal with in, in, in terms of the poor diet or the stress, they go along with an increased responsiveness of, of part of the immune system. You know, we talked earlier about these, these short-chain fatty acids, this butyrate that is like the internal break on your immune system. And all these unhealthy lifestyle things, they decrease the production of these you know, immune system suppressing or regulating, shouldn't say suppressing, but regulating, controlling your, uh, your immune system. So we, they all lead to a situation, this what we'll call this low-grade immune activation that can be localized to the gut if it's mild, but very few things actually stay in the gut. You know, they then travel through the systemic circulation or signals in your vagus nerve or, and they, they go to other organs that can induce low grade immune activation at the brain level, which we think plays a role in this brain fog and, you know, many, many of the non-specific brain symptoms. So I, I think this is the key thing. You don't need immune boosters. You know, there's a lot of marketing of that type of approach. You need to boost the immune system that, that is completely off. You know, it doesn't understand what the problem is. Um, we need to do things that that have a, a demonstrated ability to attenuate the, this exaggerated immune uh, response. And all the healthy lifestyle changes have that in common, that they do this. You know, regular exercise, 
sufficient regenerative sleep, healthy diet, you know, luxury plant-based diet. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many supplements that are immune boosting. You know, it, it's 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 almost ridiculous when you think about this. So this would be when you have, you know, when somebody has a fever to fight an an infection. So you would increase the temperature further. You would you would put this person into a heating blanket with an immune, you know, with a boosting mechanism. So what you want to do is you want to bring down the temperature, the body temperature, normalize. That's an analogy. You know, it's not that I'm saying you get a fever from this um, low-grade immune activation. You don't, but it's the same wrong approach that somebody would take and say, "Oh, this person is, has a fever and it's not feeling well," so. Let's raise his or her temperature another couple of degrees, you know, so. So is there certain signals like in the body? Like, is it, you're saying that it's very similar to having an, a gut, the, a gut microbiome, or if your gut health's off, like you're going to be feeling lethargic, you're going to have brain fog, you're going to, you're, you're going to have lack of energy, you're going to have digestive issues, you're going to just, you're going to feel like weak if your immune system is, is off. Yeah. And if you have this ramped up, still low-grade immune system activation, you know, that, that will affect all your, all your organs, and particularly the brain, you know, where half of the cells in our brain are immune-like cells, these glial cells, and when they get a signal from through the bloodstream, which comes from the gut uh, of an inflammatory mediator, they will also turn on their, their production of their own in, inflammatory mediators that will affect the neurons, the nerve cells in the brain will change neurotransmission. Um, so it's a whole cascade of things that, you know, that happens. And so, yeah, when, when, when you have these symptoms, I think you should always think about, you know, where does it start? And then what is the mechanism and what can I do to stop this process at its, at its, at its origin, you right. know? And, so just- and, and certainly the diet is a big part of it, you know? And so just, just like you can't supplement your way out of a bad gut, you can't supplement your way out of having an immune system that's off either. And it seems to me that a lot of the same things, again, to address the immune system, really, you have to get to the origin. And the origin is optimizing your brain health and optimizing your gut health. And so... If, if the immune system, I guess, is an extension of the gut and the brain, like what are the, I know we talked about diet. We talked about stress. What are some other things that, that really can damage our gut health and, and, and weaken our immune system as well? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, you know, talking about physical activity, extreme physical activity, uh, it does something similar as both an unhealthy diet and chronic stress, because the gut perceives it as chronic stress. If, if you are an ultramarathon runner, that's not a, a, a activity that's built into us. It seems like long distance running is, but not, you know, pushing you to the absolute limits of survival. And so you will also develop, and there have been studies, the leaky gut and the inflammation and, you know, many, even many marathon runners complain of, of gut issues. I've, I've seen many patients, you know, that, that suffer from that. So that's one thing I would say there's many chemicals that we ingest in our, you know, in, in, in our diet. We don't know for all of them what negative effects they have, but certainly 
And so in general, it's, it's an interaction of these chemicals, you know, pesticides and herbicides and that interact with our microbes and the microbes get damaged and then molecules are produced that have then the negative effect on our gut. So, you know, these environmental chemicals could be in the water, could be, you know, from agriculture. Poor sleep is another one, you know, clearly uh, there's, there's a lot of things to say about sleep. I mean, one, one aspect that, that, that I understand. So, I mean, I mentioned, you know, half of our, the cells in our brain are immune cells. So to regulate these immune cells in the optimal way and then that they don't get into a runaway inflation inactivation is by having a deep regenerative sleep, you know, which has been shown to have these anti-inflammatory effects or calming effects on the, the brain's immune system. <clears throat> but it's also something that if you sleep your eight hours, eight or nine hours, you won't eat or won't be stressed during that time. And your gut will be empty, so will not be uh, food in it. And the gut will change its contraction patterns to a rhythmic, to a rhythm that every 90 minutes you have all these big mig migrating waves going through from the esophagus to the end of your intestine, which moves everything down. This has been called the housekeeper of the gut. But one of the things that this probably does or contributes to is moving microbes in your small intestine down into the end of the small intestine and to the colon. So, you know, you'll you be preventing this, what's been called this, this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, which has become an, an epidemic. Everybody, you know, has got symptoms now, thinks they have SIBO and are being treated for it with antibiotics, unfortunately, which is the worst thing you can do. So just by sleeping your eight and nine hours without getting up and eating a snack or drink, eating a you know, bowl of ice cream during that time will have a, a very beneficial effect on your gut health and um, on the same systems like the permeability and the, and the, the, and the microbial health. So yeah, ex regular exercise, sleep, then also like all the mind-based all the mind-based approach in the beginning, we talked about, you know, how negative emotions can and stress can affect the gut. So there's a growing number of studies, not as many as for the negative emotions and for the stress, but there's a growing number of studies with mindfulness training that, that has a beneficial effect on the gut microbes and the molecules that they produce. It's kind of interesting that it's, it's, it's kind of returning to the future, you know, Many of the things that we have known, these lifestyle <clears throat> changes that we've known are beneficial for our health and for healthy longevity. The several studies have shown, you know, if you implement all these things that I just mentioned, when you're 50, you can add 10 disease-free lives to your, you know, to your, to your longevity. But, you know, people are really, so what we're discovering now is that the gut and the microbes play a big role in that in that effect. You know, so we've known the the beneficial consequences, but until now we haven't really understood what the mechanisms are, which now are becoming clear. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine, like you said, lack of lack of sleep. You know, extreme physical activity, obviously poor diet, stress, negative feelings and emotions, and things like our environment, right? Because I'm sure like there's a lot of people that 
they create this new normal based on their surroundings. And if they're in a stressful environment and that's all they know, their stress levels are going to be elevated. They're going to have uh, poor gut health and poor immune function. And they're not going to really realize it because that's just what they're used to every single day is living in a stressful environment. So it's so important to, to pay attention to that. Another thing that gets thrown in with a contributing factor to poor gut health is inflammation. Is that true? Do you believe in that as well? Yeah, no, I mean, that's the response of the gut's immune system to any of these influences, these these negative influences. You know, it's so just like the brain's response to a lot of stressors and negative influences is the stress response. The gut's response is the immune uh, activation, not not like uh, an inflammation that you would get when you have pneumonia or, uh, you know, Inflammatory bowel disease, it's a, it's a more low-grade engagement of the immune system and involving different cells. But it is, you can call it immune activation, and, and that is the common denominator, how, they, how your gut responds to all these perturbations. I mean, one thing I, I forgot to mention, just thought about this uh, conversation a few minutes ago. So one thing that's also been happening during the pandemic, you know, with all these other negative factors arising, so this restriction of social interactions, you know, physical contact, hugging, kissing, you know, particularly strong in like Mediterranean countries, like, I mean, you know, I, I see this all the time with friends from Italy or Spain, you know, it's, it's extremely hard for them not to hug you and, and, and kiss you, you know. So that's been taken away even from the children. And, you know, we know that social interactions... So the, word, the early studies of the Mediterranean diet, the authors always emphasize how important to the health benefits are these social interactions that Mediterranean countries have. And that has been clearly severely restricted. And I have to say, I still find it really, really difficult. You know, like you meet people, we've been going out so not to hug them at the end. And there's always this moment of uncertainty. Should you hug them? Should not hug them? Yeah, it's kind of um, awkward. <laughs> it, it's really awkward. It, and, I, and I guarantee you, it's, it may be more subtle, that impact, but it definitely is another factor. Yeah, you're right. I mean, social interaction, community, they say that people you know, that live the longest lives in many cases, they have very strong relationships with other people because we're meant to be in community. And I think the moment that you lose that and you isolate yourself for a long period of time, you lose a sense of purpose, you lose a sense of meaning, obviously you lose a sense of connection and your stress levels just go through the roof, right? Yeah. And so along those same lines of the our ability of our feelings like stress, um, anxiety, depression to impact our gut health and how they have you know, really such strength in doing so, you hear a lot about trusting your gut. You hear a lot about trusting your intuition. You're having that gut feeling. Do you believe that there's there's merit to that? Do you believe there's truth to that? If in fact our gut is our second brain, do you believe that there's validity in actually trusting your gut? Yeah. So I mean I dedicated a whole chapter in my first book on that topic and did a lot of research and talked to people. It's 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 difficult, you know, certainly so my theory at the time was that from the day they were born, any emotional reaction, um, and there's a, there's a good example of what, you know, colicky babies, that they, they scream, 
but they somehow they point towards their belly that something hurts them. So it's it's sort of this diffuse activation, both of the emotion but also the gut reaction. But throughout life, you know, we have pretty hundreds of thousands or millions of experiences like that where there's an emotional moment and signals go down to the gut, the, the gut contracts, the feedback to the brain takes a little while, but then it's stored in the, in, in the brain. And I was talking about this, this storage site of emotional moments in, in the brain with the gut feeling associated. And that later in, in life, when you make decisions, you can access, it's like a, in a Google search or a Netflix search, you can access that memory, that vast database, and immediately get the response. So you don't have to sort of, you know, go through endless deliberations and back and forth. It's the, the problem is that's not always the best for you. If you grew up healthy and you didn't have traumatic experiences, yeah, this, or you can train it later in life that you basically just always sit back and say, you know, how do you feel? How do I feel about this? How does it feel in my gut? And you, you can train that. But there's a lot of people who have stored a lot of negatively biased emotional moments in their life. So when they, when they access the system, they often make this mistake, like a response, we call it response bias, a negative response bias. They assume the consequence of that, they exaggerate the negative aspects and the likelihood of something bad that's going to happen. So, and then, you know, you have to come in with a technique like cognitive behavioral therapy to, to normalize that, to teach people this is not the right. So, yes, I do believe that gut feelings for some people work extremely well, but for a lot of other people, they do not work well. They, they become a problem with their, you know, with their health, with, with their gut health, IBS uh, symptoms. So every time, for example, they, you know, they think of a certain food, they get cramps in their gut or have to go to the, to the restroom. Or when they meet a, meet, when they meet a person that they don't like, again, they get symptoms. Which for some people may be a good thing because you just don't like that person, but it may also be a big misjudgment because you don't even know that person. You know, just go by gut feelings. If this is somebody you want to talk to. Yeah. So I would say probably not for most people, right? Is what I'm hearing you say, I guess, overall. But and what you're saying too is that you brought up a really good point about how people have all these negative feelings and all these negative emotions that are just stored in their gut that are just stored in their brain. And so over time that compounds. And that's why I think you were saying it's so important to address both the brain and the gut health in order to, uh, to optimize both as well as the immune system. So would you say at the root of like most disease, most health issues that we're facing right now is poor brain health is poor gut health. If like, for instance, if somebody experienced a ton of trauma when they were growing up and tons of stress and anxiety and depression, we all know what that does to the gut based on our conversation and vice versa, they're going to have severe health problems as they get older if they don't address that. So do you think there's a lot of merit in saying that in order for us to change the health of the United States, we need to really focus on optimizing gut and brain health? I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of merit to this. I, I think raising awareness, you know, children should be taught in 
in elementary school or kindergarten that there is a link between your emotions and your brain and your gut and the diet that you eat and and be instructed in simple techniques to counteract this, to recognize it and to counteract it. I, I think that investment would do a lot. You know, if if there were a greater awareness of this, you know, people would be much more conscious of what they eat. And when they have symptoms, you know, they would uh, the first reaction would be, what did they, you know, what did they just think about? Or what, what, what bad thought is going through my mind? That's why I have the cramps. And instead of, the mother's panicking and taking the kid to the pediatrician. And I, and I should be careful. You know, I've, I've said something about mothers in, 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 in the past that mothers often tell their pediatricians would demand antibiotics from their pediatricians if their child has a severe respiratory tract infection. They got some very negative comments of, that, that I'm sort of, you know, a sexist from the last century, blaming it on mothers. But obviously the mothers have a big role. I mean, they have to be concerned about the health of their children. It's a natural thing. It's if they are misinformed, then, you know, it's not their fault. You know, it's, it, but they're the mediator that, you know, f- so I, I think education of mothers and small children, very important part of all this and education of the children as well and the kids. Do you think it's ever too late to, to fix like your gut or brain health based on what you know? Like if somebody, let's just say has a, their brain health deteriorates based on the choices that they make in the earlier environment for decades or somebody's gut health deteriorates based on choices in that environment. Do you think there's it reaches a point where it's just irreparable or unrepairable? <laughs> well, so the, yeah. yeah. That, that gets into the whole issue of this. We haven't talked about this, the, the long-term consequences of a, a poor gut health on diseases like cognitive decline, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I'm pretty much convinced from what I've seen and read that there is a relationship. It obviously takes much longer. It's not like this doesn't happen within five or 10 years, but it, if you have a lifetime of, uh, of all these negative influences affecting your gut and you have a genetic vulnerability, I think your, your risk of developing one of these diseases is, is much higher. So if you did an intervention Early on, what the first warning signs of, of any of those, you know, serious, very serious brain disorders, and you did an intervention with diet and all the other things that we talked about, I'm pretty convinced that this would have a, at least a slowing effect on, on the brain processes. If you get to age 75 or 80 and develop severe cognitive decline, I, I don't think it makes a difference, quite honestly. But there's a big window, you know, the big window between age 40 and, and age 70. So you have 30 years of time. We can say, well, I did all the wrong things until I was 40, but now, you know, it's, and you haven't developed a heart attack in, you know, at age 40. If you get over that period and you say, okay, I'm, I'm really going to be implementing a 180 degree turnaround in my lifestyle. I think that is, is a good chance of, of improving uh, your, your chances of staying. And, it, you know, it, as the study showed, it, it, it adds these, these 10 years of healthy longevity, not just getting older, but being healthy during that time and, and not, you know, coming between impaired. Wow, that's so fascinating. So we talked about, like, the signs of, like, a weaker immune system, the signs of, like, gut health that's kind of off. 
but like what what are some signs that people should maybe pay attention to that say somebody's listening to this that has kind of not taken care of themselves for a really long period of time like what are some signs of a completely destroyed like gut or early signs of this cognitive decline that you talk about well, I mean, the cognitive decline, they, they, they'll notice, you know, so we, we all notice that our recollection of names will get impaired slowly, you know, in, in the beginning, unnoticeably, and, and then all of a sudden, they say, wow, this is really, I hope I'm not developing, you know, Alzheimer's disease. But so at the earliest sign of this, kind of that your, your brain is not as sharp and not as good in remembering and making decisions, and I, I think that's certainly a warning sign. Clearly, if you look in the mirror and or, or on the scales and you've gained 20 pounds, another huge warning sign because that means it's not just a cosmetic thing. It's the, it's the, this immune activation that goes along with the majority of people that have, uh, you know, a high BMI and developing then metabolic syndrome and, and type, uh, type two diabetes. Same with your, with your blood pressure. So any of these, things that you go to your physician. So your physician is not going to tell you um, what we talked about in our conversation about this brain gut system and the low-grade immune activation. They'll tell you, well, do you have to pay attention to your blood pressure? Take that pill. I'm going to write you the prescription. They, they don't even have the time to explain that to you in detail. And for a lot of people, that's how the interactions with the medical system is. So they get the statins for the high cholesterol, they get the, you know, the, the blood pressure medication for, and then the doses may have to go up. Uh, if you just look at the TV commercials, that's what's being propagated. You know, it shows these these healthy looking but overweight, but active. You know, they. I always remember that that commercial. Somebody, you know, an overweight individual who is the coach of his daughter's soccer team. So it associates the soccer team, the young, the kids, active, physically active and healthy with, with his problem. And then, you know, it implies, well, you could just be as active and healthy as they are if you take that, that medication for, for your, you know, type 2 diabetes. So the pharmaceutical industry in some ways instills in us this is kind of normal, you know, and it's normal based on the guidelines that... When you're over 60, you have to take your set of pills for all these manifestations of an unhealthy, you know, brain-gut system, a brain-gut microbiome system, and then an just overactive immune system. So, you know, it's the education would have to, I mean, this is a huge barrier. You know, the, the pharmaceutical industry obviously makes the money of not recognizing that, you know, and, and going on with our lifestyles just as before. Yeah, so they, they're certainly not going to be the, you know, the facilitator of a, a change in, in, in the way we look at our health and feeling responsible our, ourselves to take care of it. Yeah, it just reinforces, I think, the, the narrative that, you know, aging is permanent and you're going to, whatever age you are, you're going to stay that age forever and there's no epigenetics, there's no way to proactively increase your longevity or reduce your, your biological or psychological age. And people kind of fall into that trap and they're like, Oh, this is just the way it is. I'm going to die when I'm 70 or whatever the average is. And I'm going to, you know, my, my, I have bad genetics, so I'm going to be obese. And what they don't realize is there's a way 
to change that. And I guess what I also heard you say is, is there a kind of a direct correlation between somebody's weight? Like if somebody's super obese, odds are they're going to have a pretty weak immune system. Well, it's, it's actually not so, as I said in the very beginning, you know, it's not the weak immune system. It's the obesity is associated with, with this leaky gut phenomenon, with the metabolic syndrome, with this inappropriate activation of the immune system. And, you know, the immune system's spilling over into the systemic circulation, affecting the fat tissue and the liver. And so, yeah, I mean, there's clearly this, this connection. Not, not everybody who's obese has the metabolic syndrome and this immune activation. Right. But um, there's a lot of people that have these metabolic problems that are not obese. But in this country, uh, you know, amongst Caucasians, I would say um, there's a fairly good correlation. You know, I mean, I often say when I give a talk, and it sort of varies depending on what that talk is, if it's in an area with high obesity rates, you see a lot of people in the audience, you know, that are obese. And then I always say, you know, probably in this audience of 200 people, there's a significant proportion, particularly the ones that are overweight and, and, and obese, that also have the metabolic syndrome and this abnormal immune activation, and you are at risk for any of those diseases that, that I'm talking about, you know. So it's, I think for a lot of people, they're not aware of this. They think overweight and obesity is, is a cosmetic problem. You know, it's not a, it's not the, the root cause of a lot of our chronic illnesses. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of it is there's this facade that if you look a certain way that you're off automatically going to feel a certain way the rest of your life. Meaning if you're like a thin, you know, person that's muscular or whatever, and you look good in clothes that you're automatically going to be happy. And, you know, there is some truth to that, that if you do look good, you probably have some feeling inside, but it can't be the only thing that helps you feel good. You have to take care of all the other areas of your life that we were discussing it. But so it gets a bad rap and people are like, oh, like they're just, you know, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to become one of those people that becomes vain or all I care about is my body. And really it's not what it's about. It's about like really addressing your health at the core and really optimizing your gut health, really optimizing your brain, optimizing your heart so that you can protect yourself from getting sick so that you can live longer so that you can be that person who, who walks your son or daughter down the aisle so you can play with your grandkids when you're older and kind of be proud of the steps that you took to, to really um, maximize your health. And I have a, there's a couple more questions. One of them is, is there a level of like genetics when it comes to our immune function, our immune function? Because there's some people you'll see that just never get sick and there's others that get sick all the time. So does, does genetics and biology play a role into that? I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's a, there's a concept called resilience. So there's a lot of people to have seen them in some of our studies that have you know, early adversity, trauma. I mean, think about all the refugees, there's millions of refugees. If we didn't have a mechanism, a biological mechanism of resilience, 90% of them would be predicted to develop mental disorders, but they don't. You know, they actually, some of them are extremely successful, right? You know, once they go through this trauma of the relocation, they come to, to a country where they can start a new life, a new career. And, Many of them, let me saw it with the boat people, you know, from, from Vietnam. I think we're going to see the same thing with the Afghani refugees that a lot of them are going to be the, you know, even though they had this 
unspeakable trauma that they went through, you know, for, so there's resilience and there are biological mechanisms. And I shouldn't say so 10 years ago, I would say that's all based in the brain. I would say it's based on the, the brain body interaction, this resilience mechanism, but it's incompletely how we understand that, you know, so a future medicine, cost-effective medicine would be understanding how you can enhance resilience in, 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 in people. I mean, we are able to en enhance resilience amongst, um, you know, amongst soldiers, amongst Marines, but that's just resilience against in, in, in combat situation. It's not generalized resilience or health because many of them develop, you know, when they come out of the service, all kinds of mental health issues. But it's certainly something that the military has been doing in training people in, in, in resilience. So why should we not be able to have research programs in teaching resilience at all levels of, of, of life, you know, which would be... I should also mention something, you know, you mentioned the genes a couple of times. So we always live in these boundaries, you know, one is, you know, live in the boundaries of what we can do with our microbiome. Mm depending on how it's programmed early and what genes we have. I mean, the genes play a big role in setting these boundaries, you know, which, so if these boundaries are narrower, you will get sick much earlier if there's a perturbation in the space in between. If they're wider and you operate at the bottom of the potential of your capabilities, and obviously you have a huge room to, to increase your longevity and, and, and your health. And a good friend of mine who's, you know, extreme rock climber in his mid seventies. That's sort of his philosophy that he, I mean, I just talked to him yesterday and he still climbs the most difficult routes. He has a, a body like an 18 year old and, and he swears on this philosophy. Most of us are not exploiting our, our potential that we have that's set genetically. I, I sort of agree with that as well. For the majority of people, that's pretty correct. And it's pretty worthwhile exploring that for every person themselves, you know, how far. It obviously takes mental effort to, to push yourself, you know, to reach that limit. Or, but it's definitely worthwhile when you get older to see how far you can expand that, that, that range. There's so much there. And we could talk about the subject of resilience and pushing yourself in discomfort all day and you know, I think it is so important to put yourself in these stress, stressful situations that you can adapt to and over time build up to like you kind of putting yourself into like you're seeing like cold water therapy and cold showers or breath work, different forms of meditation. Obviously, we talked about physical exercise and even just like simply like facing your fears. Like it could be as simple as if you're afraid to ask somebody out in a grocery store and that's that's stressful for you like asking that person out and then building that resilience muscle and being okay with, with failure. And I mean, there was, there's was so much in that, that I think can benefit us long-term, but just for the sake of time, I think you know, that's kind of how we have to put a bow on that conversation. And the last question I have is we talked so much throughout this episode on like what we can do in the long-term, like really from a foundational approach, how to boost immunity, how to optimize the gut, how to improve brain function and how it all comes together through healthy diet, through managing stress, through optimizing your sleep, mo sleep, moving your body relationships, and that sort of thing. 
but let's just say like somebody's starting to feel like off. They're starting to feel like they're getting sick a little bit. Is there any remedies that you use or anything that you suggest for somebody that can kind of help them, you know, kind of get better efficiently if they're starting to feel sick? Yeah, I mean, I would say unless you have already done this, you know, the the, the moderate, you know, exercise, which could be just walking for 40 minutes uh, or, or 30 minutes, social interactions, you know, either just for the fun or so there's many groups, you know, for meditation, yoga, um, mindfulness. It's not just the technique that you learn there, but it's also this, the social interactions. I would say that those and, you know, and pay more attention to the kind of food that you eat. The, I mean, they're all just kind of subtle. You don't have to go, go totally out of your way. Depending on what triggered you're feeling that you're not feeling well, if it's something more severe or some, you know, a major relationship issue that's festering, I mean, obviously that may not go in until you resolve that issue, you know? So it's not, it's not like if you're, if you have marital discord, you're not going to solve this with a healthy diet. You know, it's, it's, you're going to, you have to deal with this problem first, but it, it may be that the stress, the chronic stress of a bad marriage over several years is taking its toll. And then you should do these other things in addition to, you know, either resolving and getting out of that marriage. Cause you see a lot of people that they mistake being sick for being just stressed. And their their body is just shut down and breaking down. Yeah, I see that a lot. And it's uh, you know in our society, it's it's kind of more acceptable and less stigmatized to have a physical ailment, to have a have a gut health issue. So I I strongly believe in that. You know, the fact that all of a sudden so many people talk about they have SIBO and they have a poor gut health is a way to say not to have to say there's some problem that they're dealing with that the physician would dismiss or their friends would say, no, it's, you know, you're you, you, just unhappy or, or, or stressed out. So they, they use that, that surrogate term, you know, it's, it's my gut, I have a weak gut or I have SIBO or I have a leaky gut. So that's definitely, I think, one thing that accounts for some of those increasing numbers that we see now, you know. It's, it's much more acceptable. I mean, I see this amongst my colleagues, you know, they would have, they would have not accepted if somebody came with IBS symptoms, they would have just said, ah, it's another IBS patient, complainer. So now they've seen well, now they can do a breast test, now they can give antibiotics, which they, they really shouldn't, but at least the patient feels that this physician is taking me serious now, you know? Right. Yeah, you're right. And I think just really, I think the, the main focus of our conversation just reflects back to what you said. It's like really getting to the core of the issue. Like if you're having IBS, it's like, well, what's, what's causing it, right? Is it stress? Is it what you're eating? Is it the lack of sleep? Is it the lack of physical exercise? Is it the lack of connection and, and really addressing all of that first. And I think like, once you can address all of that and you're like, okay, my relationships are good. I'm moving my body. I'm eating well, I'm sleeping great. Then you can kind of start to look at, all right, well, maybe there's some, something else going on that I need to look at. But I think you make a really good point. Like you have to start there. Like you have to yeah, start with it. You can, well, you have to start with what you can control. Yeah. And for example, in our division at UCLA, you know, I've, I've worked for many years with um, a very accomplished nurse practitioner. We always saw the patient together. So she also learned a lot from my approach to the, to the patient. So she's now a, a wellness coach. So if somebody sees a, a patient and is willing 
to see her, she will explore all these issues, their sleep, their social relationships, their diet, all of these, and make a, a list of, of factors that contribute to, to their problem. So she, you know, in, in that setting, you no longer see that this patient has a gut issue. It's, it's the whole person is, has a compromised, you know, homeostasis or balance. And, and I right. think that's the way it should be, really. That's how we should see. So the, the final question I have for you along the lines of homeostasis is like, so what are the signs of a, of a strong gut? What are the, what are the, like, so we talked about like the bad gut. We talked about like what can go wrong and how to fix it. Like, what are the signs that you finally kind of made it to a point where things are running smoothly? Well, I mean, I would say, you know, you will have regular bowel movements. You will not have chronically recurring bloating, discomfort, or gurging in, in your stomach. You won't have heartburn. You know, you won't have cramps either in your stomach area or in your lower belly. And, you know, you will know exactly the things that are good, that feel good when you eat them. And you'll know the things that are not good for you. So you don't, you'll have developed an aversion to sugary foods and sugary drinks, you know. So it's, so for a lot of people, that state is almost unimaginable, sadly. You know, they, they, they feel everything else in my life is okay if I could just control my, my, my gut symptoms. I'm not sure if I believe that when somebody says this because there's usually something else going on that is underlying this, but many, many patients perceive it that way, you know, that, that, that those symptoms control their lives and they have not found a way to, to get rid of them. But if you deal with the whole, the whole person at, this, at the same time at this encounter, I, I think you'll, it's like the, the, the peels of an onion, you, you peel them, you peel them, to layers of an onion, you peel them off and, and you can get rid of them one after another and maybe not get totally rid of them, but make them better or, or less interfering with, with their lifestyle. Yeah. A lot of what we talk about on the show is not being trapped in the victim mindset. And a lot of people, like you were just saying, kind of fall into that, like, oh, like, you know, because of my, my symptoms are dictating my life instead of saying I dictate my symptoms. Like if I'm having these symptoms, it's because of something that I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis that's reflecting that. And there's a way to change that so that you can mitigate the symptoms and, and hopefully they go away and you get better over time. So, so Dr. Mayer, this has been awesome. I think so many people are going to get a lot out of it. I learned a lot. We went so deep on gut health, on immunity, on the brain, and, and really an all-encompassing approach on how to maximize our health over the long term. So I just wanted to thank you once again. If, if people want to get your books, I know you have the gut immune connection and the, the mind gut connection. Is that your first book, right? Yeah. Where can people find out more about you? Where can people buy the books and that sort of thing? Well, I mean, you know, the, the easiest for a lot of people have it's always been to go to Amazon, but I mean, there's clearly other booksellers, you know, Barnes and Nobles and HarperCollins, who's published most of these books. But if they go to my website, emeronmeyer.com, then they'll be asked to sign up for a newsletter, which is always packed with new information and also shows so the website shows all the, the links on social media and YouTube, you know, where, where they can. We have also a big collection of all the past podcasts and interviews and talks I've given on the website. So they, there's, there's a big library that they can consult. But so I would say, you know, start with the website and then go from there to the rest of the social media outlets. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Once again, I will make sure to include all those links in the show notes. And for those listening, what I want you to do, just like I encourage with every other episode is not only to go and buy his books, but to share a takeaway, something you learned from him. And I'll put his social media handles in the show notes and make sure you, you tag him, tag myself. Maybe it was something he said about the gut. Maybe it was something he said about immunity or the diet, whatever it was. We'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.